It's my absolute pleasure to uh, introduce to you tonight uh, Dr. Helen Murray. So the first time I met Helen was uh, in the lab where she started as a newly postgrads trying to test different things in the lab where we know, um, where we were in the lab that Helen had an alternative life playing ice hockey. So we went to this ice hockey game. It was my first game ever. And uh, I remember she was playing the championships against Poland. And I was amazed by how powerful and um, intense this game was. And that's how Helen has been going on in the lab. She's taken a few punches, uh, figuratively, um, but she's come um, and did an amazing PhD. I no longer call her my student, but I call her my colleague. Helen, over to you. Uh, thank you, Victor. It is an absolute pleasure tonight to be speaking at Raising the Bar. It's a series I've, I've really admired over the years and, and um, yeah, quite special to be able to sort of share, as Victor mentioned, sort of these, these two parts of my life. They're really big passions of mine and um, they've kind of come together recently to form a research program, which is is really just super exciting and I'm really excited to share it with you. So I study a brain disease that affects people who have had repeated head knocks and yet I also play a contact sport. So I, I actually started playing inline hockey when I was about 10 and inline hockey is like a, um, a version of ice hockey on rollerblades. It's very similar. Uh, and then I moved into ice hockey when I got a bit older and I, I started playing for the New Zealand junior woman, New Zealand uh, inline team when I was about 10 and then moved into the senior woman team and then the ice ferns um, in 2013. So uh, I've been playing hockey for a really long time. It's a huge part of my life, uh, just as much as sciences. And so while those two things might seem somewhat at odds, someone who studies the brain and yet also plays a very physical sport, um, I think they're actually, they've been very complementary and the skills that I've learned and developed as a athlete has also shaped me as a scientist. Both science and ice hockey require a lot of similar traits, a lot of teamwork, um, a lot of perseverance, a lot of hard work and a lot of fundraising. So with, with all of this, I guess maybe it's no surprise that my research has sort of transitioned to focus on a disease that now uh, we know affects people who have had a lot of head knocks over a long period of time. And while there is a lot of work being done on this question of, uh, you know, what happens in the brain when you get a head knock at the time, I actually study a disease that is um, occurring 10 to 20 years after these head injuries have occurred. So this disease is called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, uh, which is a huge mouthful. So we're going to call it CTE tonight. And it's a progressive brain disease that affects people who have had these repeated head knocks over a long period of time. And many athletes aren't aware that these head injuries could uh, increase their risk of developing a brain disease. But I think more and more in the media, we've been seeing people coming forward and talking about their experience playing professional sport and where their head injury has sort of meant that they're now sort of suffering from symptoms later on. And I'm sure there are many people around the, uh, the world and in New Zealand who aren't realizing that actually something is happening in their brain. And this is a disease that we don't really know much about. Uh, most of the research on CTE has been done in the last 10 years. So it's very recent um, and we're still really in the early stages of figuring it out. And the first time I actually heard about it was also quite recently. So when I, I saw the movie Concussion, which was starring Will Smith in about, I think it was 2015. And by that time I was halfway through my PhD already. So 
uh, it's been kind of a, a journey for me to kind of come into this research. And throughout this talk, I'm going to take you through that story of how my expertise in studying brain tissue has kind of come together with my life as a hockey player um, to kind of shape this research program. Um, and by the end of it, I hope you'll know more about this disease and more about the research that we're doing to understand CTE. So first of all, we'll just um, set the scene a little bit. So throughout this talk, you'll hear me compare Alzheimer's disease and CTE. And these are different degenerative brain diseases that cause dementia. And this term dementia is um, an umbrella term, essentially, for a range of cognitive symptoms that can affect a person's life, such as memory loss, uh, impairments in perception, reasoning, attention, language, and people with dementia can also experience psychological symptoms like agitation and depression and aggression and apathy. So Alzheimer's disease and CTE are types of dementia, and there are many others, uh, like vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia, and of course, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. And so what we find with these diseases is that the symptoms that people exhibit can actually look quite similar. Um, and what really sort of differs is the, which, does, which symptoms sort of start first. And that can make it really difficult to diagnose what type of dementia someone might have. And so the only way to definitively make a diagnosis of what type of dementia they have is to look at the brain after someone has passed away. But if the symptoms are really similar, then people kind of ask, you know, why does it matter what type of dementia someone has? Well, when we look at the brain, we see that there are very specific microscopic changes that happen um, in each of these diseases, and we call these pathologies. And by understanding the similarities and the differences between the pathologies in each disease um, or each type of dementia, we can build a picture of how that disease has developed. And that is really crucial for us to find ways to prevent or to delay or to treat disease. And so that's where my story starts. Uh, during my PhD, I studied Alzheimer's disease with Professor Morris Curtis and Sir Richard Fall at Centre for Brain Research. And I worked with human tissue that was donated to the Neurological Foundation Human Brain Bank, which is based at the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences um, and the Centre for Brain Research. And so throughout my PhD, as Victor mentioned, I sat next to him for a long time, uh, I learned how to preserve brain tissue and to prepare these ultra-thin slices of tissue for my studies and how to apply very specific uh, fluorescent labels that would bind to only one part of the tissue that you know, I wanted to study. So that could be something like a blood vessel or a certain type of brain cell or one of these pathologies that we wanted to understand. And throughout that process, I learned how to study different processes within the brain tissue. I learned how to take um, microscope images of um, the, the labeling that I was doing like this. And so these images allow us to kind of look at what's happening in the brain on a microscopic level. And throughout the course of my PhD, I was studying Alzheimer's disease. And the main kind of character in, in the project that I was looking at is this protein called tau. And so tau is a protein that has a normal function inside of our cells. It um, has a really important function to keep brain cells sort of structurally stable. And in Alzheimer's disease, they become, the, the tau proteins become altered and they start to clump together, and that causes them to form these dense structures that we call tangles. And so tangle pathology is not just a feature of Alzheimer's disease, and I guess, spoiler alert here, CTE is one of the diseases where we see this tau protein start to form, 
And the difference between these diseases is kind of where the tau starts to accumulate in the brain and how it moves around the brain as the disease progresses. But I'll go into that a little bit more soon. I had learned a lot about tau and Alzheimer's disease um, by the end of my PhD. And I wanted to continue my research and I wanted to find out what was happening at the earliest stages of this disease so that uh, we could sort of find out what are the things that we could intervene and what, what changes are happening that we could get to first and prevent the disease from even starting. That's kind of the, the real dream is to make it so that no one even gets Alzheimer's disease. And so to do this, I developed a collaborative project with um, across two places. So I was fortunate enough to receive a philanthropic um, fellowship from the Health Ed Trust. And that was really, really amazing because it meant that I could kind of craft um, a kind of project which is a little bit different from how most fellowships might work where you would be based in one place. So instead of just being based at the University of Auckland, I also traveled back and forward to the National Institutes of Health in Washington, D.C. And that was an incredible experience because it's a whole new way of doing research and they have um, amazing resources over there. And by going back and forth between the two places, I was able to learn uh, how to use sort of new equipment and new technologies and then bring that knowledge back to New Zealand sort of straight away um, in a really interactive sort of way. Uh, so that was really exciting. And during that time, I was studying a part of the brain that controls the sense of smell. And so I was looking at um, a whole range of things, including blood vessels and uh, inflammation. Um, these are processes that can happen in the brain that we think might be some of the earliest processes that start to occur when the brain is under stress and is damaged. So these, the blood vessels can become um, sort of broken and leaky. And it starts to trigger this cascade of inflammation where immune cells start to come in and, and sort of try and uh, fix everything, but they actually kind of end up making it worse. So I was studying uh, all of this in the area of the brain that controls the sense of smell. And the reason for that is because the sense of smell is one of the first symptoms that occurs in diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And so by studying this area of the brain, we were trying to get an idea of what are the first things that go wrong in disease. And this is a really important question because if we had early warning signs that could tell us when something is about to go wrong or is starting to go wrong in the brain, then we can do something about it before we start to lose all those really precious brain cells. And so while I was working on this loss of sense of smell kind of issue. Um, I was reading about things that cause risk factors in disease. And one of the things that kept coming up was um, traumatic brain injury. And so it turns out that even after uh, a mild brain injury, the, the brain cells themselves can become really stressed and uh, the blood vessels can become leaky and we can start to see inflammation. And these were processes that I was um, already studying. And so it was kind of sitting in my mind that these were the things that were happening in brain injury um, that could also trigger dementia. And by this time, uh, I was also, you know, I was still playing ice hockey. Um, so I started playing for the ferns, uh, the ice ferns in 2013, which is the same year I started my PhD. And I first captained the team in 2016. And throughout my PhD, I've been going around the world to compete in world champs. And during this time where I was doing a fellowship between America and New Zealand, I was also traveling around um, to play in World Champs for hockey. So there was quite a lot of movement going on where I was, um, you know, training, playing hockey and then going to America and then coming back to New Zealand. And I think throughout that time, I became more and more aware of the head injury um, that was happening in my sport and in my team. More and more of my teammates were affected by concussions 
and several had been forced to stop playing hockey entirely um, because of the long-term effects that they were experiencing. And that was really devastating because, you know, witnessing these really amazing, dedicated women, um, talented hockey players who are my really good friends, um, have to call time on the game that they really love and put pause on their study and their careers uh, because of the symptoms that they're experiencing. Um, yeah, it's really hard to, to kind of watch. And being someone who studies brain diseases and has been reading about head injury um, and the risk factors for dementia, you know, I was starting to wonder, you know, what's happening in my brain right now? You know, um, where am I going to be and where are my teammates going to be in the future? And this is something I should be kind of worried about. And so I guess with any good story, there's always like an element of serendipity and there is certainly a bit with mine. So during one of these trips where I was uh, overseas and then kind of back in America and I came back to New Zealand in December 2019, I was back in New Zealand to do some work on the human brain tissue that was here. And the day that I arrived back in the country, uh, Sir Richard Four was hosting an event to launch a sports brain bank initiative which meant that we were going to start uh, receiving brain donations from people who had been athletes. And at this launch event, um, we were introduced to this disease called CTE. And it affects people who've had these repeated hits to the head over a long period of time. And we heard from a range of different people. So um, there was uh, Sir Brian Williams who talked about his uh, head injuries from his rugby career and how that's affected him. And we heard from neurologists who have been seeing people in their clinic who have been athletes and experiencing symptoms of dementia. And I guess what was striking is they were um, showing symptoms in their 40s and 50s, uh, which is a lot earlier than what we see with Alzheimer's where people usually start to present with symptoms in their sort of late 60s. And then we heard about brain banking initiatives from around the world. So um, Associate Professor Michael Buckland is the director of the Australian Sports Brain Bank, and they had started uh, a few years before ours, and they have since shown um, CTE, they found CTE pathology in the brain of people who have played rugby, and um, some of which were amateur players, not all of them were professional football players or rugby players, sorry. So it really kind of highlights that this isn't just a disease of professional sports people. This is something that was affecting um, amateur players as well. And we also heard from um, Dr. Chris Nowinski, who is a former American football athlete and a WWE wrestler turned scientist who founded an organization called the Concussion Legacy Foundation. And he is championing this global sports brain banking effort. So, He's trying to sort of get together these brain banks from around the world to start um, collecting brain tissue from people who have played these, these sports and experiencing dementia to see if we can learn more about CTE. Because if you want to understand how a disease works, the best place to start is actually by studying the people who have had that disease. So throughout this launch, we heard uh, a lot about the brain changes that were happening in CTE. And most of the research is on these tau tangles. So we see them in uh, CTE in, in a different area of the brain. So in Alzheimer's disease, we see them in this area of the brain that controls uh, memory. That's where they start to form first. But in CTE, we start to see the tau tangles forming in the, the deep valleys between the folds in the brain. And more specifically still, they actually form around blood vessels. And so this pathology actually makes a lot of sense. 
so when you get a head impact, um, a, a knock, not necessarily a concussion, but just any kind of knock to the, to the head, uh, you get these forces that are concentrated around the areas where the structure of the tissue is sort of less consistent, which is things like around blood vessels and in these um, folds in the brain. And so these tau tangles are actually forming in the areas of the brain where the structure of the tissue is less consistent and um, in areas that we know are sort of experiencing the most stress. So yeah, it, eventually these tangles, they start off in these, in these valleys and then they start to move uh, and grow and um, end up in other areas of the brain, including the area that involves memory and also other parts of the brain as well. And so this is, um, this is quite important because it's very different to what we see in Alzheimer's disease. So in both diseases, you see sort of a, the tau tangles start to form in a certain place and then they start to grow and move in other places. But in the later stages of the disease, and Alzheimer's disease can be classified according to uh, six different stages and CT can be classified um, based on four different stages. But in these uh, more severe advanced stages of these diseases, the brain tissue can look quite similar when you're just looking at the tau. And that can mean it can be quite tricky to diagnose CT at these, uh, at these advanced stages because we, we can't always obviously tell it apart from, from Alzheimer's disease. And that's just one of the issues that we need to address. We also don't know much about uh, CT other than these tangles. We don't know anything about what's going on with the blood vessels. We don't know what's happening to the brain cells, whether there's inflammation um, and what's happening to trigger all of this. You know, what's the, what is the, um, the driver from the, the head injury to this towel forming and causing damage? And how is this similar or different to Alzheimer's? And so in order to diagnose CT in living people, we really need to know what's happening at the start of the disease. We want to know uh, what is the tipping point that determines when this disease starts to develop? What's, um, what is the point when we, we would know that something is going wrong? There's no magic number of hits that will determine whether someone will get CTE and not everyone who plays a contact sport will get CTE. So why is it that some people do and what, um, sorry, for the people who do, you know, how do we modify or delay or stop this disease? And the first step to answering any of these questions is to figure out what's actually happening in the brain. And so I guess during this whole um, sports brain bank initiative launch, I had this kind of light bulb moment because I realized this is a disease I really need to be working on. You know, this could be me. This could be my teammates. And everything I've been doing in my career so far had actually given me a really, really good foundation to contribute to this field. I knew quite a lot about tau and human brain anatomy. And I've been working on a project uh, that explores early changes in these diseases. And probably most importantly, while I was in America, I was working on a new tool to study brain tissue which could really accelerate the CTE research. And so when we study brain tissue, we apply three or four of these sort of fluorescent tags to see parts of the brain tissue. And that, uh, that number, sort of three or four, is because the microscopes that we use um, can only separate kind of three or four of these colors when we um, are taking the image. And because the brain is so incredibly complex, um, we often have to kind of mix and match these different tags and different combinations using different slices of brain tissue so that we can see all the different things that we would need to see in order to answer a question um, that we wanted to know about the brain structure. 
But what we did in America at the NIH was design a way to label the brain tissue with more than 100 different tags, all on one slice of brain tissue. And that just took some relatively simple adjustments to a microscope and a little bit of um, changes to how we, we actually do the brain tissue labeling. And so essentially how this works is we take, uh, we make these adjustments to the microscope, which means we can label 10 markers on the tissue at a time. And then we take that image and then we remove all of those labels and we add another 10. And so by doing that, what we do is we build up this library of images of all the different tags on a single piece of brain tissue. And now we have these incredible images which allow us to see all of the complex and fine detail that uh, we would need to see in the brain tissue. So rather than just seeing one marker of a blood vessel, I can see all the different layers of that blood vessel and to see is there a specific part of the blood vessel that has changed or altered. Um, I can look at uh, different parts of a brain cell and see if there's a certain part that's changed or altered. Um, and that is just incredible because we get 20 times, at least 20 times more information from a single piece of brain tissue than we normally would get. And that doesn't only mean that we can ask better questions about what's happening in the tissue, but it also means we can really maximize the amount of information that we get from a single piece of tissue, which is such a really precious resource that we want to make the most of. So I guess what I find so exciting um, and about and incredible about this, this multiplexing um, tool is that we can use it to acquire a lot of information about the brain structure and CTE, which is what we really need to know in this field right now is, is what is actually changing in the brain. We have so much to learn. And so rather than painstakingly labeling a couple of markers at a time, we can generate these amazing image libraries that allow us to see all this complex detail. And I don't think these data sets will just help us answer questions about CTE. I think it's also going to help us understand other diseases like Alzheimer's disease um, better as well. And so that is the approach I'm taking with my research. Um, I'm using this labeling to explore questions like what is happening to the blood vessels, what types of brain cells are affected by that tau pathology, the tau tangles. Um, is it just the location of the tau that's different or is there a, you know, sort of a different rate at which it moves and changes around the brain? Um, or is there a completely different process going on? Um, what, what's happening with inflammation? There's just so many things that we want to, we want to learn. But of course, uh, you know, all of this research is, is dependent on us having brain tissue to study. So since our Sports Brain Bank initiative launched in 2019, we have had um, lots of people, amazing people, register to donate their brain to our research after they pass away. And it's an incredible gift, a really incredible gift um, from a family. And it's something that we, we absolutely cherish. And the families are they're on this research journey with us. Um, and everything that we learn from the brain, we pass on to them because it's, it's so important for, their, for the family to know, you know, if their loved one had CTE, if they had something else. Um, and and that's, that's something that we really want to be able to give back as well. So we're actively accepting brain donations and registrations to donate from people who have had a history of repeated head injury. But we also need to study brains from people with Alzheimer's disease and people who are sort of, you know, cognitively normal um, so that we can compare and actually understand what is different in CTE compared to these other forms of dementia or, or just from normal aging. And so you can go to brainbank.ac.nz uh, to get more information about that process. For now, we are yet to uh, receive a CTE brain um, to study in New Zealand. So we're working with the Australian Sports Brain Bank 
uh, and some overseas collaborators to, to get this research going. And we've recently had an amazing um, uh, philanthropic donation to, to get a PhD student on board, and she's just started uh, her project, which is going to be looking at this multiplexing technology and, and CTE. So, yeah, we really can't wait to kind of to get into it and, and see what we can contribute to this field. And, yeah, so I guess, you know, what I've learned in this career so far and from all of this research is that science is like sport in many ways. <laughs> you need... Um, a really amazing team of people with different expertise and perspectives to come together to take on a huge challenge like understanding CTE. And I feel very privileged that I get to work with so many talented people, not just scientists, but um, the families and the people who are out there living with the aftermath of head injuries and, and getting out there and telling their story. And yeah, I, I think together we can make a really a big difference by understanding the link between head injury and dementia. And I think we'll make some really some really good progress in understanding um, not only CTE, but, you know, other forms of dementia as well. And now I guess, okay, I'm a hockey player, right? So I have to, I have to quote Wayne Gretzky to finish. Um, my favorite quote from him is a good hockey player plays to where the puck is and a great hockey player plays to where the puck is going to be. So my message to athletes who play contact sports is to love your sport because I love mine and also remember the long game. Um, play to where you're going to be. One day when we hang up our boots, we still want to have a relatively healthy brain so that we can enjoy everything that life has to offer. And, you know, the brain is the most incredible thing that you own. Um, it's, it's really, really quite amazing that everything about you is held in this one, um, one soft little organ in your head. And it really doesn't like being bumped around. So we need to look after it. But, but just know that if, if yours has been bumped around, you know, we are doing this research and we are doing our best to, to get these answers. And New Zealand, I think, has a lot to contribute to the space with our, you know, our great love of contact sport. So I hope I can use my sport background and my neuroscience expertise to get some answers. And with that, I'm going to hand back to Victor. Thank you, Helen. That was a great uh, introduction to your work. So, Helen, you talked about um, brain donations. Uh, so people that are wanting to help your research, how can they do it? And do the brains that get donated from you, do they need to come from like professional athletes or can it be anybody else? Yeah, that, that, that's a really great question. So there's, um, we know that the biggest risk factor for CT is exposure to repeated head injury. And it isn't necessarily um, from you know, hard knocks or having lots of actual concussions. It's just the exposure to head bumps. So you might not have had um, injuries that have caused symptoms like concussion symptoms, but you could have had lots of bumps across a really long period of time that can increase the risk. So it's not just professional sports people. It's also um, amateur athletes, people who have played a contact sport for a long time. Sometimes I think we don't even realize as athletes how many times we've actually kind of been bumped around and really anyone that plays one of these contact sports and it has symptoms of dementia or symptoms of cognitive decline um, is, is kind of what we are looking for in terms of the brain donation program. Um, the other sort of point you touched on is, is the brain donation itself. So there are sort of different processes to brain donation. It's not the same as body donation. Um, we actually have to contact uh, the people very quickly after they've passed away, the, the families, and we ideally need the brain about 
24 hours, ideally after the person's passed away. So it's not something that you can leave to the last minute. If it's something that people want to consider, um, we really encourage them to get in touch with us. And, and um, we've got some questionnaires and sort of go through the process and talk to family about your, your wishes so that um, we can really do the best research possible with a brain donation. And with that, of course, you need uh, people that are perfectly healthy as well, right? One of the biggest um, things that we actually need is sort of a normal, healthy control to compare to so that we know what is actually CTE, what is the disease and what is uh, sort of normal aging. So we can kind of tease those things apart. And, you know, brain donation is um, a really amazing gift. It's something that you know, you aren't necessarily going to benefit from once you've gone, but future generations are going to going to get so much benefit from. And so I think it's a really, really incredible thing for people to consider. So I want to thank everyone already who has already registered. Um, it is really incredible. A question from um, one of the listeners from Hillary. Um, is there a parallel between the loss of smell in early dementia in Alzheimer's or CTE uh, and similar symptoms uh, in co- during COVID? Yeah, this is a great question and, and a bit of a segue actually, because while I was in America and I was studying the sense of smell, I also ended up working on um, a project uh, that was looking at the sense of smell in COVID-19. So I guess when you're working on one brain region, it's sort of, you know, in a pandemic, it's, that's kind of what happens, right? So uh, I guess the short answer is we we aren't sure. It looks like in COVID-19, the sense of smell problems come from the the cells in your nose that actually control, um, receive the odor information. And in Alzheimer's disease, we haven't quite figured out yet what is causing that sense of smell. So it could also be those cells in the nose um, that send information into the brain that is the problem in Alzheimer's, but um, we're still kind of trying to figure that out. What we did know, what we did find in Alzheimer's is that Uh, we saw those tau tangles in that area of the brain that controls the sense of smell. So it was one of the first areas that was affected. You talk about uh, rugby uh, a lot. Who's most at risk besides rugby? (laughs) Yeah, I think we we think of rugby because, you know, in New Zealand, that's one of the big big sports that we love. Um, And rugby players are at risk of of having all the head injuries over a long playing career. Um, Overseas, Though uh, the majority of the work that has been done on CT has actually been done on American football players. So there is um, obviously quite a big uh, American football, you know, uh, sport in the States. And that's where people first started to realize that CT was, was happening. Um, but before that, this, um, this disease was actually found in boxes. So it was back in the day, it was called de- dementia pugilistica or punch drunk syndrome. Um, and we now know that that is essentially the same as CTE. The, the pathology we see in the brain is the same as what was described in, in boxes. So boxing is probably one of the sports that we know quite a lot about, also um, American football. But also sports that have been studied around the world include, include ice hockey, so <laughs> it's me, and also um, football or soccer. So there has been some studies in the UK that have shown um, CTE and um, soccer players. And presumably because, you know, there's a lot of practice of hitting the ball with the head over a long period of time and long playing careers. Is there um, a danger when you start doing these sports earlier, like for the kids? And does it matter how many times you you practice? Um, Is it the total amount or is it uh, is one big head knock worse than 10 small ones? 
we know that it's not necessarily the number of concussions that you have. So the number of concussions doesn't necessarily um, correlate with getting the CTE because we know that quite a lot of people won't necessarily report their concussions as well. It's actually more about the duration of exposure to head injury. So how long someone's playing career has been, how long they've potentially been hitting their head for. So really one of the big drives at the moment is to try and reduce the amount of head injuries that children will be getting. So trying to start contact later um, instead of, you know, we don't need five-year-olds bumping their heads. Uh, it's just not necessary. And if you can reduce uh, contact until they're older, um, then we, we're not damaging young brains that are still developing. And we're also reducing the, the amount of head exposure by you know, 10 years maybe. And that can make a really big difference in terms of the amount of trauma that the brain is experiencing. And would you would that also work with, like, for instance, uh, football players with, um, when they do like headshots? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's more about, you know, can we limit the amount of head injury risk? Um, even those, those ones that don't necessarily cause a concussion, they're still dangerous. So are there ways that we can adjust our trainings and our games so that we can still play fast, exciting sport, but not take as much risk of these head injuries? And I, th I think there's definitely ways that we can do that. Your study is focusing on when you have the brain in the lab and you can uh, image it. Uh, but Mar Margaret was asking, is it there a way to analyze CTE in people that are still alive? Um, so you can actually uh, diagnose and potentially then treat them. Yeah, that, and that is really where the research needs to be. So the reason that we studied the brain after the person has passed away is because we need to find markers in the brain to tell us what CTE is that we can try and look for it earlier. So in order to, to know whether someone has CTE, we, at the moment, we can only find that out from, from actually looking at the tau pathology. But we can't really see tau pathology um, with, uh, with non-invasive methods like MRI or, or blood tests. It's not really conclusive for CTE. So right now, there's actually no definitive way to diagnose CTE in living people. But we hope that with, um, with our research and finding different signatures of what CTE looks like in the brain, we'll be able to combine this to find new ways to diagnose CTE in living people with more accuracy. And that will help us. That will help us do a lot, really. It'll help us, as you say, um, try and find out when someone is at risk of, of, sort of developing a degenerative disease. It'll allow us to find ways to intervene before things start to go downhill. Like, can we stop this cascade of damage before it turns into full-blown dementia? And... And to do this, what we really need to do is to follow people over a long period of time. So this is a, a kind of study that requires us to enroll uh, people who might be at risk for developing CTE and monitor them over a really long period of time and see what's actually happening in their brain, what changes can we see on MRI or blood tests. And then one day when they do pass away, we'll look at their brain and see if they had CTE. And that's going to give so much context to, to what we actually see in the brain because we know what it looked like early on and that's what will allow us to to figure out how to diagnose it. Um, so for those people that have, they know they have repeated uh, head injuries, um, is there already a way that they can uh, change their behavior to um, preserve or improve their uh, brain function? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we always say, I think, at the Center for Brain Research, and this is probably Sir Richard's quote more than anything, is what's good for your heart is good for your brain. So, you know, exercising and staying fit and healthy and eating, you know, good quality food and, and, you know, keeping your brain active 
is the best thing that you can do to prevent or delay or you know any sort of cognitive decline. And I think that's probably one of the big take homes for me is that knowing that you're at risk of developing something like CT. So for someone like me, I love my sport and I want to keep playing it. And I know that I'm putting myself at risk, but by understanding that risk, I feel like I can make better decisions about how I look after myself. Um, so I don't add any more risk factors on as I get older. So that's things like not drinking alcohol excessively and looking after my, my health and, and my diet and that kind of thing. So I think probably that's the biggest take home is that if you think you might be at risk, um, yeah, to, to make decisions about your long-term brain health, that's, that's going to make sure that you kind of reduce the risk as much as you can. And is there an average age of diagnosis of CTE? We're still really learning a lot about it. And as I said, it's kind of difficult because we don't have a, a conclusive um, way to diagnose it living people. The best we can do is diagnose a probable CTE and which will then be confirmed when um, the person passes away. So uh, it is difficult, but we anecdotally and from sort of the limited studies we have, it does seem like people develop symptoms uh, a lot earlier than other degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. So sort of in their 50s or late 40s as opposed to 65 and over. Um, and so I think that's also one of the things that make people not necessarily realize what's happening um, because a lot of people think, oh, I'm too young to be getting dementia or this can't be. You know, this can't be that because you know I'm I'm, I'm not old, and it's it's true they're not old, but um, we know that this is uh, occurring a lot earlier. So we talked a little bit about um, the dangers of of getting repeated head injuries when you're young, um, but I'm going to move to the other side of of uh, the spectrum, and we all know that when you age, you're more uh, at risk of falls. Um, is there an increased risk for th those people, the elderly, to get CTE, or is that uh, will it take too long to develop the CTE in in those people? Yeah, it's, that, that's a really good question as well. Actually, we we know, I guess, from studying um, young people, athletes, that kind of thing, that 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 exposure, that the amount of time and the number of head injuries is the most uh, important risk factor. But we know that um, as the brain ages, it does become sort of more vulnerable. It does become a little bit um, more prone to sort of developing pathologies or, or damage. And so falls later in life may, may potentially um, accelerate some of these, these changes when you get damaged into those, those areas where you get stress and a head knock, um, potentially that could accelerate some damage. So it's, it's not something that we, we know yet. But I guess any head knock is probably bad from what we're finding. And this is this is a question from Sophie, which I find quite interesting. I never thought about this one. So really good question here. Are there any known genetic factors that contribute to people developing CTE? Um, because, yeah, so if you compare um, two people with each other, you'll give them the same amount of uh, head knocks one might develop, the other might. So are there any predisposing factors in addition to the genetics? Yeah, I mean, another really, really good question and, and something that I think we will explore as we start to um, receive brain donations and, and look at the genetics of the people that we study is, is, that, is there actually factors that will maybe predispose people to, to getting CTE? We, we know with um, degenerative diseases that, you know, it's sort of like a, a stepladder of risk factors. You know, you might be born with some genetic 
um, predispositions to to a disease and then over your lifespan you might sort of take another step up the risk factor ladder if you add things like head injury or um, other sorts of things like maybe you know living in an area with high pollution or something like that so you know as we kind of take uh, more steps up that risk factor ladder we we could potentially be getting closer to a disease and so I guess if you start with a, a genetic risk factor that would yeah potentially explain some of the the reasons why some people can play a contact sport their whole life and, and not get CT and some people could. Um, the short answer is we, we don't know. We don't know yet. We, we know that there are some genetic risk factors that can uh, lead to sort of a predisposition for tau tangles to form, but um, it's not well studied in CT at all, really. And maybe a question to follow up on that, because I, I think it's, it's, it's quite fitting. Um, because some of the you've you've highlighted a little bit before about the correlation between Alzheimer's and CTE. So are there similarities between your research on CTE and other neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson, Huntington's, and motor neuron disease? We really want to understand these similarities and differences more by by comparing um, the changes that we're seeing in the brain. There are similarities in the sense that we know um, inflammation is a feature of quite a few diseases. Uh, and we know that blood vessel damage can also be um, something that affects multiple diseases. But I guess the question is where in the disease process are these things occurring? And I think with CTE, we think they're occurring quite early. We think it could be one of the driving, one of the driving things that is leading to the progression of the disease. The complicating thing, which I hadn't mentioned until now, is it's, it's not uncommon to see multiple pathologies that would be associated with different diseases in one person. So sometimes you can see um, classical CTE pathology, the, the tau in the, the deep valleys of the, the cortical folds. And you can also see features of um, that might be associated with Parkinson's disease or might be associated with motor neuron disease. It's actually it's quite common to see that. We don't really know what's going on there. We don't know if it's a, the CTE uh, lesions start and then they can almost sort of predispose the brain to other um, pathologies starting to develop or maybe it's um, associated with age as people get older they have a likelihood of developing multiple things so there's a lot of complication there in terms of how these diseases are similar and different and how they can present in different people um, which is a complicated answer but basically to say there's a lot going on and we we still need to figure that out as well yeah i think one of the issues will be because there's um a long time between the symptoms and potentially the first incidents, right? Yeah, that, that definitely makes it a bit more challenging as well. Yeah. And we typically we typically study people at, you know, at the end of their life where, you know, they might have been receiving head injuries in their 20s and 30s and then um, developing this pathology since they were 50 and 60. And then we don't see the brain until sort of 20, 30 years after that. So it is a bit of a trying to figure out what's happened. Um, yeah, it's one of those sort of puzzles where you only see the aftermath and you're trying to figure out what happened at the start. So if you have um, head injuries during childhoods when your brain is still quite developing or you have it later in life um, when you have like a fully formed brain, would you say that one is more dangerous to the other for developing CTE? We know that during brain development, there is a lot going on in terms of how the brain cells are wiring and connecting up to each other. And that process is very dynamic. And it's, it's really important that the brain cells are able to sort of um, find their connections to each other. 
And so I think, you know, we, we don't have a lot of evidence on this because that would require us to be studying um, the brains of very young people. But we, we can sort of hypothesize that, you know, any damage to the brain during that quite critical period where, you know, brain cells are connecting and, um, and refining their connections isn't going to be a good thing. And so whether or not that predisposes people to getting CTE is, uh, again, I, I feel like I'm saying this a lot, we, do, we don't know because we're still, we're still learning so much about this disease, but I think it's pretty, it's pretty clear to say that getting these head knocks early it's not going to be a good thing in terms of, of brain development. It's, I think that's a pretty, um, yeah, pretty sure thing. So anything we can do to sort of limit head injuries at a young age, I think is always going to improve brain health over the long term. You've spoken a lot about contact sports that are linked with CTE, but uh, it's not just sports that is to blame. We've got car accidents as well. Does epilepsy and epileptic seizures form a risk as well? Yes, yes, you're right. So I have talked um, sort of exclusively, I guess, about sport, um, head injury and sport, but it's not just sport. It's any anything that um, leads to repetitive head injury over a period of time. So that can be um, situations like domestic abuse where people have um, had head injuries over a long period of time. It could be, yeah, um, epileptic seizures where people have hit their head quite a lot over multiple times. Um, yeah, there are there are lots of other um, reasons why people might have had a lot of head injuries, and those are all all risk factors for CTE as well. It's not just sport. The brain is 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 an amazing um, organ, uh, so even if we get brain injuries, it doesn't stay still; it can repair itself, um, and that kind of like depends. So, can you just talk a bit about about that? How the innate repair mechanisms are. Yeah, so so this um, I didn't really mention it, but the the idea of the brain being able to repair itself was something that I, I explored during my PhD. So that was one of the the key things I was trying to understand is whether or not the brain, the Al- an Alzheimer's disease, still has the capacity to sort of repair brain cells and repair itself. And the short answer is, you know, the brain can grow new neurons, new brain cells in in two particular areas of the brain. Um, But in adult life, it doesn't do it at a rate that is uh, fast enough um, to repair the amount of damage that's done um, in a degenerative disease. So I guess the short answer is the brain is incredibly plastic. It's incredibly um, adaptable and it can compensate for a long time um, while brain cells are dying. And, And we don't typically see disease symptoms start to form until that kind of capacity to compensate is lost. Once too many brain cells have gone, the brain isn't able to compensate anymore. And that's when we start to see symptoms. And so while there is some capacity for the brain to compensate and to um, try and repair itself, it doesn't do it at a rate that is, is fast enough to really, really make a difference. And that I think is the main reason why we have such a, a focus on trying to prevent the disease, trying to delay it, trying to slow it down, because we know that once those brain cells are lost, it's it's very difficult for the brain to actually repair them. Maybe a small side question that just popped up. Um, does alcohol make the effects of head injuries worse? Uh, again, this is probably one of the, the hot topics at the moment in CTE research is um, a lot of people who develop CTE symptoms can go on to develop um, things like uh, alcohol addiction and, and aggression and, and things that, you know, could potentially be associated with, with alcohol use. And we, it's very difficult to tease apart, you know, what is happening from the head knock and what is happening potentially from, from alcohol use. Um, 
so yeah, it, it's very unclear at this stage. And maybe one last question to um, to finish off the discussion. Um, knowing what you know now about um, CTE and, and head knocks, would you go back and tell your younger self to still go and play hockey? Yeah, I mean, this sport has given me so much, so much. Um, and it's, it's really sort of made me who I am today. And so I, I love sport and I love being able to, to play sport. I think knowing earlier that head injury could give me, you know, a higher risk of developing a brain disease later in life, I would have definitely taken a lot more caution but also made decisions, different decisions about, you know, when, when to go back and play, if I've had a knock, um, just to sort of stop and go, actually, you know, I really want to play this game, but, but what's more important in the long term. And so I think if anything, it will, it has changed the way that I, I think about how I manage my health in terms of, you know, if something happens during a game and how I deal with it. And I try and sort of remind my teammates as well, you know, hockey, it's just a game, sport is just a game and we have our whole lives ahead of us. So let's make decisions that benefit the rest of our lives. And that's something that's not just true for uh, our brain. It's for everything that we do in life. We should take care of our brain and our body at all times. Um, I would like to thank uh, Dr. Helen Murray for her amazing talk. I would like to thank you for attending this session and hope to see you back next week.